PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for Volume 89, July 2009. This month's research reports focus on manual therapy, exercise, and traction for cervical radiculopathy, laser therapy versus ultrasound for subacromial impingement syndrome, paretic lower extremity loading and weight transfer after stroke, post-stroke muscle recruitment and co-contraction during reaching, and exercise testing of children with spina bifida. The July issue also features a case report and two perspectives. This month's case report focuses on measurement of post-stroke spasticity and treatment with botulinum toxin. This month's perspectives are interpreting studies of responders to physical therapy interventions and assessment of physical functioning. PTJ is now on Twitter. Go online to twitter.com slash ptjournal and sign up to receive notices of new PTJ content and updates on PTJ-related activities on your own Twitter page or on your mobile phone. Clinical summaries, invited commentaries, e-letters to the editor, online-only features to articles, bottom-line clinical summaries, and the Bottom Line podcast are available at www.ptjournal.org. First this month, manual therapy, exercise, and traction for patients with cervical radiculopathy, a randomized clinical trial by Ian Young, Dr. Lori Michener, Dr. Joshua Cleland, Dr. Arnold Aguilera, and Dr. Allison Snyder. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. To date, optimal strategies for the management of patients with cervical radiculopathy remain elusive. Preliminary evidence suggests that a multimodal treatment program consisting of manual therapy, exercise, and cervical traction may result in positive outcomes for patients with cervical radiculopathy. However, limited evidence exists to support the use of mechanical cervical traction in patients with this condition. The purpose of this study was to examine the effects of manual therapy and exercise with or without the addition of cervical traction on pain, function, and disability in patients with cervical radiculopathy. This study was a multi-center, randomized clinical trial that was conducted in orthopedic physical therapy clinics. 81 patients diagnosed with cervical radiculopathy were randomly assigned to one of two groups, a group that received manual therapy, exercise, and intermittent cervical traction, or a group that received manual therapy, exercise, and sham intermittent cervical traction. Patients were treated an average of two times per week for an average of about four weeks. Outcome measurements were collected at baseline and at two weeks and four weeks, using the numeric pain rating scale, the patient-specific functional scale, and the neck disability index. There were no significant differences between the groups for any of the primary or secondary outcome measures at two weeks or four weeks. 
the effect size between groups for each of the primary outcomes was small. The limitations of this study were the use of a non-validated clinical prediction rule to diagnose cervical radiculopathy and the lack of a control group without treatment. The results suggest that the addition of mechanical cervical traction to a multimodal treatment program of manual therapy and exercise yields no significant additional benefit to pain, function, or disability in patients with cervical radiculopathy. An e-appendix and a bottom line for this article are available online at www.ptjournal.org. Lead author Ian Young is a physical therapist at Spine and Sport in Savannah, Georgia, and is affiliate associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Virginia Commonwealth University Medical College of Virginia campus in Richmond, Virginia. Next, short-term effects of high-intensity laser therapy versus ultrasound therapy in the treatment of people with subacromial impingement syndrome, a randomized clinical trial, by Dr. Andrea Santamato, Dr. Vincenzo Sofrizzi, Dr. Francesco Panza, Dr. Giovanna Tondi, Dr. Vincenza Frisardi, Dr. Brian Lagan, Dr. Maurizio Ranieri, and Dr. Pietro Fiore. Subacromial impingement syndrome is a painful condition resulting from the entrapment of anatomical structures between the antero-inferior corner of the acromion and the greater tuberosity of the humerus. The aim of this study was to evaluate the short-term effectiveness of high-intensity laser therapy versus ultrasound therapy in the treatment of subacromial impingement syndrome. The study was designed as a randomized clinical trial and was conducted in a university hospital. Seventy patients with subacromial impingement syndrome were randomly assigned to either a high-intensity laser therapy group or an ultrasound therapy group. Forty-two women and 28 men with a mean age of 54 years participated in the study. Study participants received 10 treatment sessions of high-intensity laser therapy or ultrasound therapy over a period of two consecutive weeks. Outcome measures were the constant Murley scale, a visual analog scale, and the simple shoulder test. For the 70 study participants, there were no between-group differences at baseline for any of the outcome measures. At the end of the two-week intervention, participants in the high-intensity laser therapy group showed a significantly greater decrease in pain than participants in the ultrasound therapy group. Compared with participants in the ultrasound therapy group, participants in the high-intensity laser therapy group had statistically significant differences in change in pain, articular movement, functionality, and muscle strength after 10 treatment sessions from the baseline. The only outcome measure which had a change surpassing the minimal clinically important difference was the visual analog scale score the visual analog scale score decreased 1.65 more points in the high-intensity laser therapy group versus the ultrasound therapy group. This study was limited by sample size, lack of a control or placebo group, and follow-up period. Over a period of two consecutive weeks, participants diagnosed with subacromial impingement syndrome showed a greater reduction in pain and improvement in articular movement functionality and muscle strength of the affected shoulder 
after 10 treatment sessions of high-intensity laser therapy than did participants receiving ultrasound therapy. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Andrea Santamato is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Foggia in Foggia, Italy. Next, measurement of paretic lower extremity loading and weight transfer after stroke by Dr. Vicky Stemmons-Mercer, Dr. Janet Kuiz freeberger Dr. Shou-Siu Chang, and Dr. Jema Purser. Important impairment-level goals of stroke rehabilitation include weight-bearing through or loading of the paretic lower extremity and transfer of weight from one lower extremity to the other. Improvements in these limb loading and weight transfer abilities have been shown to relate to improved performance of many functional activities. Unfortunately, valid and practical clinical measures of paretic lower extremity loading and weight transfer have not been identified. The purposes of this study were, one, to assess convergent validity of the step test and the knee extension component of the upright motor control test as measures of paretic limb loading, and two, to assess the repetitive reach test as a measure of weight transfer in the first six months after stroke. This was a prospective cohort study of 33 adults with lower extremity motor impairment following unilateral non-cerebellar stroke. Participants were tested once a month from one to six months post-stroke. The step test was performed with the non-paretic leg as the stepping leg. Scores on the step test and the knee extension component of the upright motor control test were positively correlated with peak vertical ground reaction forces beneath the paretic limb during functional tasks. Scores on the repetitive reach test were positively correlated with change in vertical ground reaction forces beneath the paretic limb during the diagonal reach task. Scores on the repetitive reach test also were positively correlated with weight transfer time during stepping with the non-paretic limb. The step test, performed with the non-paretic leg as the stepping leg, is a valid measure of paretic limb loading during stroke recovery. Of the clinical measures tested, the step test correlated most strongly with the force platform measures. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Vicki Stimmons-Mercer is Associate Professor in the Division of Physical Therapy, Department of Allied Health Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Elastic, viscous, and mass load effects on post-stroke muscle recruitment and co-contraction during reaching, a pilot study, by Dr. Tina Steckman, Dr. Catherine Sullivan, and Dr. Robert Scheidt. Resistive exercise after stroke can improve strength without increasing spasticity. However, the effect of the type of resistive load on muscle activation and co-contraction after stroke is not clear. The purpose of this single-session mixed-repeated-measures pilot study was to determine the effect of load type, elastic, viscous, or mass, 
on muscle activation and co-contraction during resisted forward reaching in the paretic and non-paretic arms after stroke. 20 participants, 10 with hemiplegia and 10 without neurologic involvement, reached forward with each arm against equivalent elastic, viscous, and mass loads. Normalized shoulder and elbow electromyography impulses were analyzed to determine agonist muscle recruitment and agonist-antagonist muscle co-contraction. Muscle activation and co-contraction levels were significantly higher on virtually all outcome measures for the paretic and non-paretic arms of the participants with stroke than for the matched control participants. Only the non-paretic shoulder responded to load type with similar activation levels but variable co-contraction responses relative to those of the shoulder of the control participants. Elastic and viscous loads were associated with strong activation. Mass and viscous loads were associated with minimal co-contraction. A limitation of the study was that only a reasonable but limited range of loads was available. Motor control deficits were evident in both the paretic and non-paretic arms after stroke when forward reaching was resisted with viscous, elastic, or mass loads. The paretic arm responded with higher muscle activation and co-contraction levels than the matched control arm across all load conditions. Smaller increases in muscle activation and co-contraction levels that varied with load type were observed in the non-paretic arm. On the basis of the response of the non-paretic arm, this study provides preliminary evidence suggesting that viscous loads elicited strong muscle activation with minimal co-contraction. Further intervention studies are needed to determine whether viscous loads are preferable for post-stroke resistive exercise programs. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Tina Steckman is Clinical Assistant Professor and Neurologic Residency Program Coordinator in the Department of Physical Therapy at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. At the time of the study, she was a student in the Graduate Program in Neurology at the Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions in Provo, Utah. Next, treadmill testing of children who have spina bifida and are ambulatory. Does peak oxygen uptake reflect Maximum Oxygen Uptake by Yanka Frederica de Groot, Dr. Tim Tocken, Sana de Graaf, Professor Rob Goshkins, Dr. Paul Helders, and Professor Luc Van Hees. Earlier studies have demonstrated low peak oxygen uptake in children with spina bifida. Low peak heart rate and low peak respiratory exchange ratio in these studies raised questions regarding the true maximal character of peak oxygen uptake values obtained with treadmill testing. The aim of this study was to determine whether the peak oxygen uptake measured during an incremental treadmill test is a true reflection of the maximum oxygen uptake in children who have spina bifida and are ambulatory. A cross-sectional design was used for this study. Participants were 20 children who had spina bifida and were ambulatory. The peak oxygen uptake was measured during a graded treadmill exercise test. The validity of peak oxygen uptake measurements was evaluated by use of previously described guidelines for maximum exercise testing in children who are healthy, 
as well as differences between peak oxygen uptake and oxygen uptake during a supra-maximal protocol. The average value for peak oxygen uptake was 1.23 liters per minute. The average value for normalized peak oxygen uptake was 34.1 milliliters per kilogram per minute. Fifteen children met at least two of the three Roland criteria used to evaluate peak oxygen uptake. One child failed to meet any criteria. Although there were no significant differences between peak oxygen uptake and oxygen uptake during a supramaximal protocol, five children did show improvement during supramaximal testing. A limitation of the study is that these results apply only to children who have spina bifida and are at least ambulatory in the community. The peak oxygen uptake measured during an incremental treadmill test seems to reflect the true maximum oxygen uptake in children who have spina bifida and are ambulatory, validating the use of a treadmill test for these children. When confirmation of maximal effort is needed, the addition of supramaximal testing of children with disability is an easy and well-tolerated method. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Janke de Groot is researcher in the research group Lifestyle and Health at the University of Applied Sciences and in the Department of Pediatric Physical Therapy and Exercise Physiology at Wilhelmina Children's Hospital, University Medical Center Utrecht, both in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Our case report this month is Quantitative Measurement of Post-Stroke Spasticity and Response to Treatment with Botulinum Toxin, a two-patient case report by Elizabeth Cousins, Anthony Ward, Dr. Christine Roff, Dr. Leslie Rimington, and Dr. Anand Pandian. Spasticity is a frequent problem that can develop after stroke and can lead to a number of secondary complications, such as contractures and pain. Consequently, many rehabilitation resources are used in treating the condition and its secondary complications. At present, the clinical assessment of spasticity incorporates descriptive scales of resistance to passive movement, but the use of a neurophysiological measure of muscle activity levels has been advocated. This case report focuses on the diagnosis of spasticity through the use of a neurophysiological measure. Two individuals who required botulinum toxin treatment for post-stroke spasticity were assessed over a course of 20 weeks. The researchers used both a clinical measure of spasticity, the modified Ashworth scale, and a neurophysiological measure of spasticity, surface electromyography recording of levels of muscle activity. Additionally, arm function, arm movement, and pain were measured. The researchers described the individual's responses to treatment with botulinum toxin and overall recovery after stroke. There were discrepancies between the clinical and the neurophysiological measures of spasticity. The clinical measure of spasticity was not effective in consistently identifying the presence of spasticity and therefore also was ineffective in documenting the responses of the individuals to treatment. 
The neurophysiological measure was able to identify when muscle activity levels had been reduced, but a reduction in muscle activity levels did not always correspond with a reduction in scores on the modified Ashworth scale. The accurate identification of spasticity is important not only for assessment, but also for the selection of appropriate treatments after stroke. Lead author Elizabeth Cousins is a Ph.D. student in the Institute for Life Course Studies at Keele University in Keele, Staffordshire, United Kingdom. Our first perspective this month is a guide to interpretation of studies investigating subgroups of responders to physical therapy interventions by Dr. Mark Hancock, Dr. Robert Herbert, and Dr. Christopher Marr. Many researchers and clinicians believe the effectiveness of existing physical therapy interventions can be improved by targeting the provision of specific interventions at patients who respond best to that treatment. Although this approach has the potential to improve outcomes for some patients, it needs to be implemented carefully because some methods used to identify subgroups can produce biased or misleading results. The aim of this article is to assist readers in assessing the validity and generalizability of studies designed to identify subgroups of responders to physical therapy interventions. The key messages of this perspective article are, one, that subgroups should be identified using high-quality, randomized, controlled trials. Two, that the investigation should be limited to a relatively small number of potential subgroups for which there is a plausible rationale. Three, that subgroup effects should be investigated by formally analyzing statistical interactions. And four, that findings of subgroups should be subject to external validation. This article will be the subject of a discussion podcast with authors Dr. Mark Hancock and Dr. Robert Herbert as well as Dr. Julie Fritz and PTJ Editorial Board member Dr. John Childs. The discussion will be moderated by Dr. Dan Riddle, PTJ's Deputy Editor-in-Chief. The podcast will be available later this month at www.ptjournal.org and on iTunes. Lead author Dr. Mark Hancock is lecturer in the Back Pain Research Group at the University of Sydney in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Last this month... Assessment of Physical Functioning, a conceptual model encompassing environmental factors and individual compensation strategies, by Dr. Kristen Tomey and Dr. Mary Fran Sowers. Commonly studied physical functions include activities such as walking and climbing stairs. Despite the acknowledged role of environmental factors and behavioral strategies to compensate for reduced performance capacity or environmental barriers in characterizing physical functioning, most assessments do not take these factors into account. This article presents a new conceptual model for assessment of relevant physical functioning while accounting for habitual environmental factors and compensation strategies. Lead author Dr. Kristen Tomey is Assistant Research Scientist in the Department of Epidemiology in the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Thanks for listening. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always welcome your feedback. Email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.